I've been asked to preach specifically about marriage, and I'm going to do that. But you know, uh, as Peter shows us in First uh, Peter, uh, I'm going to look at chapter two and three here. You can't separate out areas of your life. It's just everything comes under the lordship of Christ. Everything relates to what he did for us in the redemption that we have in him. And Peter shows us that very specifically. Now, he's writing this epistle to people who are suffering. Uh, that, that is one of the main themes of, of 1 Peter. And he's telling us how that we have been born again to a living hope in and, and chapter 1. And then he just works out through the rest of this epistle, telling us how we apply this living hope to every area of life. And he, he says that Christians are in very, very difficult circumstances, whether it's persecution, even slavery. He writes in chapter two about those that were living in slavery. But notice in the, very, in the middle of this discussion, how he brings it all back to Jesus and the way Jesus suffered. And he wants us to see whatever suffering we have in life in relation to the way Jesus suffered. I'm going to begin reading verse 21 of 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving to you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see their, their respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You know, I, I love being married. Tony, I've been married 42 years, but I'm going to tell you something. Uh, I know this doesn't sound good, but it's just the truth. To be married is to suffer. It just is. 
you, 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 you pick out any couple, the best couple you know, if they've been married 50 years, they've suffered a lot. They've been through sorrows together. They, they've suffered at the hands of others. They, they've caused suffering in each other's lives. Man, you take two broken, sinful, depraved human beings and you stick them in the same house for 50 years, you, I'm telling you, they're going to suffer. <laughs> There's just no way around it. Uh, and this is why we need Jesus, isn't it? It's why we need the gospel. And, and Peter here is, is talking to us in the midst of this and he wants us to remember about the suffering of Christ because the way Jesus suffered is an example to us for what God is doing and how he uses suffering even in our lives. Now, what he tells us about Jesus' suffering is that Jesus' suffering had a purpose, that he suffered for our sin and that his suffering provides an example. He says that, that we are to look to his example. He, and how did he suffer when he, when he was tried? I think he alludes here to both the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. And when Jesus suffered in his judgment uh, in, before Pilate and on the cross, it says that he did not use the sin of others as an excuse for his own sin. He, he did not sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He didn't breathe out threatenings to those that were causing his suffering. In fact, what he says he did do was he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus knew that judgment belongs to the Father, and he entrusted himself to him. And he accepted the mission that God had given him to bear our sins to save and sanctify us. We sang about it here that he saw on the other side of that suffering for the joy that was set before him in bringing many to glory. He endured the suffering of the cross. Now, Peter says that this, seeing the example of Jesus' suffering, demands a response from us. Did you catch this phrase? To this you have been called. It's given to us not only to believe, but also to suffer. We don't like that word. That's not a convenient word. It's a frightening word. But he says, to this we have been called. We're to follow in his steps. He bore our sin in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, I want you to see, Peter looks at this, this the act of Jesus suffering, the way he responds, he's responding. I think he breaks it down into what I would consider like four movements. Follow along with me. First of all, it's purposeful suffering, right? It's not random suffering. Uh, God is not caught off guard. He's not shocked and surprised by what happens to Jesus. Uh, that in the same way that Peter says to this, we have been called. Jesus was called to suffer. He, he suffered for you on behalf of you. So it's purposeful suffering. Secondly, there's a trusting response. 
that even when he's suffering, because he realizes there's a purpose in this suffering, he entrusts himself to God who judges justly. There's no deceit. He doesn't revile. He doesn't threaten. Uh, he continues entrusting himself. Thirdly, there's a redemptive fulfillment. Because Jesus responds correctly to the means God chooses to accomplish his purpose, there's, he reaps exactly the purpose that God had for him because it says he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Ultimately, that was the only way my sin could be paid for. And so because Jesus suffered in this way, entrusted himself to God, I'm redeemed. I reap the benefit of what he did in the way he suffered. And then that brings me to the fourth thing. There's a sanctifying effect. Uh, that effect is on someone else because he suffered. I get redeemed and sanctified. His obedience changed me. He says he bore our bodies in his, uh, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We, we're redeemed, our sin is dealt with, and then sanctified by what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. There are our identification with his suffering. Now, you got that? Everybody understand what, what Peter's telling us about what Jesus did? Now, look at the first word of chapter three. What is it? Likewise, likewise. That means in the same way, in the same way. Similarly, this, this word, Jesus uses this word. Uh, remember when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan and he talks about the priest and the Levite passing by, but then the Good Samaritan comes and he takes him and binds his wounds and puts him in the inn and says, whatever he he owes, I'll pay. And Jesus says, now, which one of these was, was neighbor to that man? And they said, well, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, just so. Now you go and do likewise. You see, he, he gives us the image. Here's the good Samaritan. Now you go and do, do that. Do likewise. When Jesus told about that tower falling on those 18 people and killing them. He says, you think this was because that they were worse sinners than anybody else? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You'll perish in the same way. And so this word means you're looking at one thing and you're saying, okay, now apply it here. Do the same thing. Make that, that same pattern fit here. So when he just told us about the sufferings of Christ, notice in chapter three, he says, likewise, you wives, you are going to have purposeful suffering. Now, let me be clear. I'm not talking about physical suffering. I'm not talking about physical abuse. In fact, if you look up in chapter two, uh, Peter sort of deals with that because in verse 13 and 14 up there, he talks about being subject to the authorities. He talks about including the governors, the magistrates who are appointed to punish evil. And, and, and so, you know, if, 
if there is abuse, physical abuse in a marriage, that becomes a, an issue for the magistrate, doesn't it? That's an issue for, for punishment, prosecution. Uh, we're not talking about uh, anybody needing to be subjected to physical suffering. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of suffering that we endure whenever we have anything we don't want or we don't have anything we do want. Elizabeth Elliot was the one who gave me that definition of suffering. Uh, and she says it's all a matter of degrees. But to the degree that you have something you don't want, or you don't have something you do want, you're suffering. And in marriage, there's nobody that has in their spouse everything they want. Maybe they talk too much. Maybe they got some irritating habits. Maybe they're too much of a tightwad. Maybe they spend too much. Maybe they never put gas in the tank. Well, there are all kinds of degrees of this. But here he, he's talking to a wife whose husband is not what he ought to be. Maybe he's lost. He's not a follower of Christ. You're not going to nag anybody into the kingdom of God. Maybe he professes to be a believer, but he does not live like a believer. How do you deal with that? Well, that's, that is indeed suffering. But notice he says here to the wives, he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. How do you live with an imperfect spouse? Well, here, Peter says that your, your suffering and your submission have a, a, a purpose. Now, let me, let me just step out of the text for a moment and just talk to you sort of uh, philosophically about what we as Christians believe. We believe the Bible is inspired and inerrant and infallible. We believe in what we call the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. That means we think God wrote it down there, had it written down there exactly like he wanted it. So sometimes we go to the, the, the text of the Scripture and we read something, and in our hearts there's a little bit of a cringe. We go, ah, that doesn't land real well. I don't, I don't like that. Let me assure you of something. When that is your response, the fault does not lie with the biblical text. We, we need to be honest with ourselves that when we come to Scripture, and sometimes we have that kind of response, we tense up, I, I don't, I'm not sure, I like this, uh, oh, can you really preach this, can you say this, that that is outside influence on us. The word of God is perfect. You know, the, the heaven and earth will pass away. Jesus said, my words will not pass away. And you can trust the word of God. And you say, well, I know the Bible says that, but I don't like it. You know, that's not a good thing. You know, that's probably not something you should say out loud. <laughs> because really what you're saying is you sit in judgment of the text. When the whole purpose of the text is, is for it to judge you. It, it, either you're going to be over the text of Scripture or the text of Scripture is going to be over you. But 
when you read something like this, you need to say, okay, if God said it, I want to understand it perfectly. I, I, don't, I don't want to take it out of context. I don't want to make it say anything that it doesn't say. I don't want to use it in a way that the scripture, the author did not intend. But I want to understand what is the Bible saying here? And clearly, Peter is saying that within the home, that there is a functional difference between husband and wife. Nowhere in the Bible does it say women should submit to men. But several places it says that a wife should submit to her husband. Now, we're going to get to the men in a moment uh, because, man, I want to be the kind of a husband that my wife has absolutely no problem following. I want to earn her trust so much that her heart can safely trust in me. But I'm not perfect either. And sometimes I misstep and sometimes I make bad decisions and sometimes I'm in my flesh. And to that degree, she'll suffer because it's hard to follow a husband you know more than. You're smarter than. You, you might under, have deeper understanding about something than he does. And yet here he says, by the way you respond to him, you can have an effect on him. Marriage is hard. And suffering, having anything you don't want, wanting anything you don't have, it's going to happen in, in marriage. And, but I want you to know that it's purposeful. One of God's most sanctifying things in anybody's life is marriage. Nothing will make you seek the Lord like being married. And nothing will make you realize your need of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life like being married. It's purposeful. God uses that to make you like your Savior. Secondly, there needs to be a trusting response. In the same way that Jesus didn't revile when he was reviled, he, there was no deceit in his mouth. Uh, he didn't threaten. How, do, how is the wife to respond to this husband that uh, is difficult, that is not what he ought to be? Well, he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. That is, you need to treat him with respect anyway. By your respectful and pure conduct. And that means that you live in such a way that the light of Christ shining in you throws light on his darkness without you having to say it. Uh, and, and here Peter talks about what real beauty is. He says, let your beauty be your inner adornment. Do you see that? He said, don't, don't let your beauty be about braiding your hair and wearing gold. Now, let me be clear. It's, it's not wrong for a woman to make herself look nice. Uh, and especially I, I, I would say, a woman who wants to look attractive to her husband, I think that's a great thing. Just like I think it's a great thing for a man to want to look decent for his wife. I mean, but I would say that you should always examine your heart and make sure that that desire to look attractive is directed toward your spouse, not toward the world, not toward others. And, you know, that your real development of beauty is inward. I, I grew up in a very legalistic independent 
Baptist background. And uh, I heard preachers preach this text before and use it to say that women should not wear makeup. I'm not in that camp, are you? I'm not in that camp. You know, last year, there's a true, last year, Americans spent $39 billion on cosmetics. And in my opinion, it wasn't nearly enough. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm not against people wanting to look nicer and look better. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. But I'm just saying, that's not your real beauty. You know, the great equalizer is going to get us all, isn't it? Age. And, uh, you know, my wife has always been an absolutely beautiful woman. I can remember the very first time I ever laid eyes on her and she just knocked me over. And uh, I mean, it was like lightning struck. But I'm going to tell you something. I still feel that way decades later. And she's still an absolutely beautiful woman on the outside. But I'm going to tell you something. The real beauty of, of her is who she is. That's what you're going for. It, it's the, the inner beauty of that gentle, quiet spirit. Uh, and here Peter gives a biblical example. You know, we know Sarah, the wife of Abraham, was a beautiful woman externally. How do we know that? Because twice kings see her and go, oh, I want her. Right? And we know that Abraham could be a jerk. Because twice he was willing to like, okay, don't tell them I'm your husband. Uh, I'm so glad that in this example that Peter chooses, he doesn't choose a perfect marriage. In fact, you think about Sarah. She endured purposeful suffering. She lived with an imperfect spouse. But she had a trusting response. She obeyed and called him Lord. Now, sometimes people quote that and they just say, oh, that, that, that's, that's just prima facie. That's what you should do. Obey and call him Lord. Well, I'm glad that Sarah is the example. And I'm glad that Peter points us back to a biblical text. So you can see that Peter is acknowledging the difficulty in marriage. Because he, there's only one place in all the Old Testament where Sarah calls Abraham Lord. And it's in Genesis 18. And that scene where God appears in physical form. And he comes to Abraham and Sarah there by the oaks of Mamre. And he says, you know, Abraham sees uh, God coming and says to Sarah, you know, you know start cooking. And they, they put on a spread for him. And God appears to Abraham and says, look, this time next year, you're going to have a, you're going to have a child. And Sarah is inside the tent and she overhears this. And what does she do? She laughs. And Genesis 18 quotes her that she says, oh, shall I, now that I'm advanced in years, I'm old like this. I'm an old woman. Shall I be with child by my Lord? Now, that's not the way I want my wife using that word. <laughs> but you see what Peter's showing us? They struggled. I mean, you talk about family drama. They had it. There was another woman. 
There's an out-of-wedlock child. There's jealousy. There's all kinds of brokenness. And yet, God uses all of that, all of it, to bring Isaac into the world and through him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see it? Uh, And so he says, you are like her daughter. If you do good and do not fear anything that is, that is frightening. You know what's ironic is back in Genesis 18, 15, it says Sarah was afraid. She was afraid. But she had to go through her fear. And we know that a year later, indeed, she has a child. And it shows it that she worked through her fear. She worked through her disbelief. And God used her obedience in spite of her fear, in spite of her suffering, to bring about his purpose. If God can make Sarah conceive and bear a child at 90, can he change your marriage? Can he change the heart of your husband? Can he give you grace? Well, that brings us to that third point, and that is redemptive fulfillment. That when you respond in the way Jesus responded, you have an imperishable beauty, which is precious in God's sight. Now think of that. If there were some beauty product out there, if you just bought this cream and just applied it, you'd, you'd never have wrinkles. You'd never have skin cancers. There were no bad side effects. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Well, this is what Peter's offering. He's something that, is, that will make you have imperishable beauty. But it's the imperishable beauty of character, of trust, of walking with the Lord. It's not about your outer body that is going to perish. It's about who you are. And when you live like that, when you grow more beautiful as you follow Christ more closely through the years, then the fourth thing, there's a sanctifying effect. The husband may be one without a word. See, just as God used Jesus' suffering to redeem, he can use your emotional spiritual suffering to redeem a husband who is out of God's will. I can't bear the thought that being married would cost more, cost Tanya more than it would benefit her. Man, if I thought being married to me is more of a burden than a blessing, more of a grief than a joy, I mean, how this affects me. Well, this is exactly what Peter's saying. When you live with joy in the Lord, when you respond to the difficulty of marriage with the right kind of spirit and attitude, the way Jesus responded, God uses it to do amazing things. When I pastored in Lexington, Kentucky, back in the 90s, um, Tony and I lived on Ashland Avenue right across from the, the church I pastored. And I remember when a, a, a family moved in three doors up from us, 
And we got acquainted with them. And I very quickly learned that the husband, when he discovered I was pastor of the church across the street, he really didn't want to talk to me much. I mean, he wasn't rude, but he, he wasn't very friendly. But we could sense that the wife was really open. And one day we had her up for a cup of tea. And in our living room, we shared the gospel with Gloria. And she put her faith in the Lord. And her husband, Steve, said, you know, I'm okay with you doing that. That's your, you want to do that? You do that. But don't bug me about it. I'm not going to church with you. You do what you do. But don't, don't ask me to do that. I'm not going to do that. And Tanya discipled Gloria. And Gloria just asked her, said, how do, how do I do this? Man, I'm so excited about following the Lord, but my husband doesn't want to. And Tanya said, well, here's what you do. You make sure that you're a better wife as a believer than you ever were as an unbeliever. That you, you, you love him better. That you're happy and joyful. That you let him see you delighting in the things of the Lord. Let him catch you reading your Bible and just having joy in your life. You prepare his favorite meals for him. You laugh at the same old tired jokes he always tells. and You just be as pleasant as you can be. On Sunday mornings, you know, you get up and go to church. Don't bug him about it. Tell him one time, look, I always hope you'll go with me, but I'm not going to bother you about that. Anytime you want to go, you just come. But otherwise, I'll get up and go to church on Sunday mornings without bothering you about it. And she lived like that for years, for years. And one Sunday morning, as she was getting ready for church, Steve said, Hey, do you mind if I go to church with you today? Well, no, I don't mind at all. I'd be delighted for that. You know, it was just a few months after that that Steve put his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And man, what God has done in their home, I wish I had time to tell you the whole story, but he's used them in great ways. And, and, and that, that, was more, that was more than 25 years ago. And their whole home was changed. The, the lives of their children and now grandchildren because she trusted him who judges justly. And she loved him to Jesus. You see, few people trust the Lord enough to live this way for long. People will do it for results, but when they don't get the results they want, they quit doing it. It's relentless. You overcome your husband's deficiencies, not by changing him, but by working on you. Tanya says you change your ways not your words, your respectful and pure conduct, your inner beauty, your devotion to your husband. Now look at the first word of verse seven. What is it? Likewise. All right. Going all the way back to the example of Christ. He told us how Christ suffered. Then he's likewise, you wives. Now he says, likewise, you husbands. And husbands too have purposeful suffering living with an imperfect spouse. He says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Boy, if ever there's a, a command in the Bible hard to obey, this is it. Telling me to understand my wife? I'm 42 years in, I'm not there yet. Uh, understand her? Uh, the, here's the thing, she's a moving target. <laughs> By the time I think I got something figured out, she changed. She's no longer like that. I married a very simple young girl, and man, I'm married now to a sophisticated lady. I mean, she's a very different person. She's grown, she's matured, she's changed. Life has changed around us. 
But here's the, here's the command. Husbands, you live with your wives in an understanding way. See, there's the trusting response. I don't get to just say, you know, women, oh, you can't understand. Can't live with them. Can't live without them. You know, all that stuff. No, that's my job. To live with her in an understanding way. And it, that means her weaknesses, her, her struggles, her failures, her shortcomings, her strengths. Acknowledging the things she's better than me at. And I'm to show her honor as unto a weaker vessel. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Weaker. It's not, that's not a negative statement. Some people look at that and they go, oh, oh, you say the woman's the weaker sex. No, here's what he means. I like Greek vases. Uh, I could tell you more about Greek vases than you ever want to know. It's, it's become, I've dragged Tanya to museums. I've, I've got books about them. I can, I, and in my office at Southern Seminary, I have some really well done replicas of some ancient Greek vases. And uh, I love those things, man. We, we bought them in Greece and I very carefully got them back. When my grandchildren come to visit me in my office at Southern Seminary, guess what I do with those vases? <laughs> right? Now, am I honoring or dishonoring that vase? I'm honoring that vase. The fact that that vase can be broken doesn't mean it's not good. It's, it's weaker, but it's fine, right? I mean, silk is weaker than denim, but it's finer. And this is the way I'm to treat my wife that, yeah, I, I, I honor her in such a way that I'm protecting her, that I'm loving her. You all remember when, we had, when the, the eclipse occurred, what, 2017, I think? Tanya and I drove to Western Kentucky to see the eclipse. And as we left Western Kentucky after seeing the total eclipse to drive back to Frankfurt, it was on a Saturday, uh, and uh, we got in an argument. I, I, knew, I knew the Western Kentucky Parkway was going to turn into a parking lot, and it did. And I wanted to hurry and leave, but she had to go back in and say goodbye to everybody. It's, oh my, I, I'll just tell, I'll, be, I'll confess, it's confession time. I, I didn't respond well. I was ticked, I was irritated. She got back in the car, we got to the Western Kentucky Parkway where we, it took us eight hours to get home. And we were in an argument the whole way. It was not good. And uh, man, you know, I, I, I didn't feel understood and respected and she felt me, you know, what she calls chest bumping her. And we, we got home after this awful, awful eight hours in the car together, upset and angry. And she looked at me and she said, you don't treat me as the weaker vessel. You treat me as the lesser vessel. That was so convicting to me. It, it just smote me in the heart. I will tell you, it might take me years and years and years to get it, but I will say, I think once I get it, she'll tell you, I, I made a conscious effort. I said, well, that's, that's ungodly. That's wrong. I never, ever, 
ever want that to be true of me. I ask her forgiveness and I, I want to give her honor. That's my job. And, and, and that is that, that re, that's the trusting response that God has asked me to do. That when I suffer, you know, she's not always going to understand me. She's not always going to show me the respect I want or this or that. But I still have to look to my example of Jesus. And just as he trusted him who judges justly, so am I. And I'm not to, I'm not to in any way dishonor her. And the redemptive fulfillment of this is that when I do that, look at this phrase. He says, that your prayers be not hindered. Peter says, don't you know, she is an heir with you of the grace of life. You being the man in the home doesn't give you any more value with God. You have no higher standing before God than she does. Just because there's a difference in your function does not mean there's a difference in your value. She is your partner. She is the a joint heir with you, the grace of life. Jesus died for her just like he died for you. And for you to look down on her, to diminish her, to demean her, to despise her in any way is a sin against God. Now you think about this. God says that he will separate you from your sin as far as the east is from the west. He'll cast your sin into the depths of the sea. He'll remember your sin no more. He will blot it out. And yet look at this. The same God who says that's how he treats your sin says, but there's one thing. That if you claim to be a believer and you do this, I'm not listening to your prayers. When you dishonor your wife, your prayers are hindered. Could it be that one reason we don't have greater power with God in our prayer life, in our churches, in our homes, is that we think that somehow we can treat our wives in some demeaning way and then still have power with God? That we could still be effective as witnesses Preachers, evangelists? No. If you want to have the heart of God, then you treat your wife in an honorable way as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And look at that. Then you get the sanctifying effect. What is that effect? Well, Peter doesn't go into it here, but Paul does in Ephesians 5 when he talks about the sanctifying, sanctifying her by the washing of water by the word. When I am the kind of man that I should be loving and leading my wife, it helps her become a more radiantly beautiful Christian than she was before. It, it has a sanctifying effect on her. I cannot expect that I be walking in the flesh and somehow my wife is going to find it either A, easy to follow me, or B, that in any way it's going to help her grow. But when both of us, as fellow heirs of the grace of life, look to Jesus, our example, and we say, oh, I want to follow his example. When I'm reviled, I'm not going to revile again. There's not going to be any deceit in my mouth. I'm not going to threaten 
I'm going to trust myself to the one who judges justly. And I'm going to ask God to use whatever suffering there is in my life to make me more like my Savior and have a greater impact and effect on my wife, on my husband, on those around me. There's something incredibly powerful about a Christian home bearing witness to the grace of God. You know, it might be that this morning God's convicted you. Every time I preach this text or any text on marriage, I come away far more convicted than anyone. Because it just reminds me how desperately I need Christ. It might be that you as a couple need to just bow before the Lord together and seek his forgiveness, the forgiveness of one another, yield yourselves to him. It might be that you need to seek his grace to help you follow him in that example. But it might be this morning, you're not married, but you caught that first part about Jesus suffering and you can apply that in your life and the things that you're facing. It might be that you've never put your faith and trust in Christ. And today I'm encouraging you to see what Peter said, that he bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And if you'll repent of your sins, putting your faith and trust in him, you can have eternal life. Would you bow your head with me? Father, I am once again smitten in heart when I read this text, realizing how much we want to respond to any inconvenience, any misunderstanding with reviling and threatening and, and accusation. Oh God, make us more like our Savior. That when he was reviled, he did not revile again. Neither was there found any deceit in his mouth. Father, I pray that you'll help us to entrust ourselves to you who judge justly. And help us, Lord, in our homes, in our lives, to walk so closely with our Savior that it has that sanctifying effect on those around us. Our husband, our wife, our children, our neighbors, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that you might use our suffering to bring glory to our Savior. And if there's someone here this morning who's never trusted Christ, may this be the moment when they come face to face with the Savior who loved them so much that he gave himself on Calvary's cross and rose from the, gra the grave to pay the penalty of their sin and to bring them to you. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.